opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. This is KUCI in Irvine at 88.9. You're listening to Privacy Piracy with Mari and Lloyd. Good afternoon. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And we are sitting here in Irvine, California at the Data Protection Summit. And actually, we're in the press room sitting here with Michael Willett, and we just came from hearing his keynote, and I'm so excited because I was very impressed, and it was a terrific keynote. Let me just first introduce you. Dr. Michael Willett is Senior Director of Security at Seagate Technology. Dr. Michael Willett received his BS from the U.S. Air Force Academy and his Master's and Ph.D. in Mathematics from North Carolina State University. Wait till you hear his accent. It's great. After a career as a University Professor of Mathematics and Computer Science, Michael joined IBM as a design architect, moving into IBM's Cryptography Competency Center. Later, Michael joined Federis, a security and privacy consulting practice. Subsequently, he accepted a position with Wave Systems, working on programmable cryptographic chips used in the development of smart card technologies. And currently, Michael is Senior Director in Seagate Research. They focus on security functionality on hard drives. And Dr. Willett represents Seagate on the Trusted Computing Group Board of Directors, Technical Committee, and Trusted Stored Workgroup. Michael also chairs the Privacy Framework Project of ISTPA. He'll tell us about that. And they have developed Operational Framework for Implementing Fair Information privacy practices. You can see more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Also, you can go to Seagate.com. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today. You had a terrific keynote. Oh, thank you, Mary. And although we have lots of questions that we talked about before I met you, I really would like you to give us an overview of your talk because it was it was really very exciting talking about the future. Go ahead. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, the the point I made was that in the concept of trusted storage, it's an embryonic thought right now because the specifications and the implementation are not even in the field yet for the idea of trusted storage. The specification work is just being finished in what you mentioned, the trusted computing group. We've been working in the last three years in the storage work group to finish that specification. It'll be published in the next couple of months, so I encourage your audience to look for that, and you'll see a lot of uh, product appearing after that spec appears uh, in this, this vein of trusted storage. So, you know, this show is going to air on the University of California, Irvine, and also people drive by and listen to this. They're business people, and and they're not as techie as you are, obviously, coming from your background, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So when we're talking about trusted storage, and you're talking about tremendous amount of data, and you were, would you give that analogy you were saying about how much data from here to the moon? Oh, the, uh, if, you, if you look at the statistics about how much digital information that we're creating and copying, I think the, uh, for 2006, there's 161 exabytes, and think of a byte in uh, lay terms as a character, you know, a typed character. So there's 161 exabytes, and uh, to the literary crowd, that's uh, 12 stacks of a Harry Potter book from here to the, to the sun. 
from the Earth to the Sun. And you uh, said it was going to be on these little tiny chips. And it's uh, it's mostly stored in hard drives, right? We use tape as a as an older technology, right. and it's mostly stored in hard drives now. So we've got a lot of information being generated. And the other thing I pointed out was that in our research, we're we're putting that that information in smaller and smaller spaces. We're packing upwards of uh, approaching a terabit per square inch of information on on your hard drive. So you can you can store a tremendous amount of data on the hard drive. We're making more of it, and we're putting it in smaller and smaller places. It'll be uh, ubiquitous. Data information will be everywhere. So talk about those of those four aspects mm-hmm. of what should what we're going to be seeing in the future. What you think maybe we should be seeing in the future to have really trusted data. Well, traditionally, uh, somebody using a laptop is used to the drive as just being a storage device. Right. And the, and most of the computing goes on on the platform itself or in the in the laptop. What they don't realize is there's a tremendous computer, a powerful computer in the hard drive itself, and there's a lot of memory. We have access directly to all that memory. And so what we've decided to do in research, and we're driving this initiative through the standards work, is to put more security function on the drive itself. Right. Because I have a big computer, I have a very closed system, right? Viruses uh, cannot invade the hard drive, and, the, and so it's immune to a lot of software attacks that attack software. So if the data's there and the computer's there, why not use it for security? So the specification I described will be putting is the details, the sort of gory details behind how to put security and trust services into a hard drive directly. Right. Now, you had four overall areas that that I would like you to share because I actually even kind of understood it. So if I can understand it, I think my audience will understand it. Well, even as trusted storage is in its, I mentioned it's in its embryonic state. It's not been, it's in gestation and it's not yet born. They asked me to speculate on the future. So I took a distant view of the future. And I saw four technologies converging on storage devices, taking right. advantage of the computing power and the memory the access control, the limited accessibility that the outside right. user has that, to that, that area. That goes to the issue of privacy for exactly. sure. Exactly. So the four I saw converging were, one, the trust and security functions. That's the base support defined by the Trusted Computing Group. The second uh, area was what I call data semantics. Today, the drive is just a bunch of bits. Mm-hmm. stored on the drive, mm-hmm. it doesn't understand the meaning of the data. Right. But, but what we're already seeing in standards work is that the meaning of data being pushed onto the drive itself. So the drive can do intelligent, data-aware computing against that story, against the data that's on the drive. Now, that goes to the issue of privacy. This is when we were walking up here. I said, this reminded me of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where how the computer really had the uh, the brain functionality, and that's what we're looking for in the future is that these computers are really going to have that brain functionality. So you were talking about, for example, our privacy and, and property, our mm-hmm. data, things about me, okay, that right now are probably out there everywhere in some background check. Or where we but don't they, know. Yeah, where we don't know, all over the place. But things about how I shop, my social security number, my family, my health care, all this stuff, these are data bits about me. And what you were talking about is that all my data or all a corporation's data would be considered property. So kind of talk a little bit about that, and that gets into, that definitely is a privacy issue. I must uh, I should have confessed earlier that I stole this idea of information as property from my boss. He's uh, quite a visionary in the company, and uh, that, that's a concept that he came up with. But I think it's very but, telling. But, but it's really a, co- a, a concept that is used in Canada. It's used in the European Union mm-hmm. because, for example, that's why there's opt-in in those, com- yeah, in those countries. In other words, a, a country like in the European Union, which 
also includes, besides most of the European countries, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Mm -hmm. all those countries say that companies cannot sell your personal information without your prior consent, which treats it as property. In other words, I have to consent for you to do it. In this country, companies can sell your information under Graham-Leach-Bliley Act unless you opt out. Now, in the state of California, we, we actually changed that. So you cannot sell. If you're a company in this state with a California citizen, you don't actually have to be a company in this state. But if you have a California citizen, you cannot sell that California citizen's information to a third party that's not affiliated without prior permission. But for affiliated companies, which could be like, you know, hundreds of them, like with GE, you can sell it without my permission. So basically, in your state where you're from, you live in, what, Pennsylvania now or something? Yeah. And you're from the South? Yeah. And in all the other states, it's opt-out also. So if you have opt-out, it's not considered property. If it's not my property, then it can be sold and shared and everything. But if it is my property, then it can't be shared unless I give you that permission, which is what you're talking about, permission-based Information exactly, I, and the idea is that you're, as you pointed out, the the ownership question is very selective today. Right, the the privacy legislation we have is 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 vertical industry oriented. It's not like in Europe where we have uniform privacy laws. Right. But today, the information is very selectively handpicked as to what is owned by whom and by and and so on. And the future I see is that all information, not just uh, sensitive information, but corporate data and movies and books and uh, everything that you generate can be will be considered your your property, and we'll have the attendant co- technologies behind the control mechanisms on, for example, computers or on the storage devices themselves to implement those uh, controls. So, in other words, when I go on a website in the future and I choose my privacy platform, like I say, don't share this with anybody else. Unless maybe I get something in return. Maybe I get uh, some kind of free service if I allow them to share it with another company. Mm -hmm. Then that would be my choice. And you were talking about that once those choices are made, that that choice sticks with the data. And through the life of the data, Mm -hmm. it all those rules apply from from wherever it travels. Was that me, my understanding? That's exactly right. You you, you got it. I did you, listen. You, you got were, it. The, if I understood it, and you are a computer scientist, then <laughs> I got to tell you, I give you a lot of credit because a lot of these people cannot explain it well enough for me to understand it. I did say bytes a few times, but okay, I tried well. to hold back from that. <laughs> but what you let me introduce the uh, International Security Trust and Privacy Alliance, which is the organization that. We've been working over the last two or three years to develop an operational privacy framework. And that's where that concept you described uh, uh, originated. The idea is that we looked at uh, all the fair information practices around the world. And and if you look at any list, notice, consent, choice, access, those kind of things, and opt out and so on that you've described, uh, those are not operational. If I gave those words to a system designer or a programmer, somebody that wanted to automate that system, they wouldn't be able to program it directly from those words. They're best practices, they're uh, principles, but they're not operational. So what we did in the framework uh, development work in ISTPA was we developed an operational framework. We converted best practices into an operational set of functions. Okay, so what you mean by operational is that the computer can understand those? Is that what you're saying? Okay. Exactly. You could program a system design person putting software together could actually program 
at one of these touch points. I describe the fact that, you know, whenever personal information moves through its life cycle, it hits various touch points where it's, ex it's exercised, used, perhaps misused, right. and so on. And it's these touch points where we want this control structure. Okay, so what are some of the touch points that you're thinking about? First, when it's collected, is that a considered? The, uh, the subject, uh, pers the subject of personal information. There are very. Okay, so when I when I first let's make it like real personal. Oh, certainly. Okay, so when let's say I go on to Amazon or something, all right, anywhere, and that's the first touch point of when I have to give my information, whether it's my credit card or I set up a profile or whatever. So that's is that considered but a touch point? That's a touch point, point exactly, because the subject itself, the point of collection. Okay. And, the, and the rights and privileges you either give explicitly or you grant implicitly, unknowingly perhaps, uh, at, the touch, at that first touch point. Now it goes into now wait, wait, Amazon. Now let's go back to that. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't there be in the future a knowing choice? Shouldn't it be transparent enough for me to know what choices I've already opted into? Well, I, I, I think so myself because <laughs> I'm, I'm both a security and a very privacy uh, advocate person. Yeah. But it's not always the case. When you, do, when you enter into certain transactions today, there are certain implicit uh, opt-in statements that you may not see that you're 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 acceding to because you have done you've you've exercised that option. Okay, so, so that's one thing that we actually need in legislation, basically, in, at least in this country, is to say that we need that transparency. Maybe that's what we need legislation to say that if a company is going to collect, it has to be transparent. I mean, that's some of the best practices exactly. of the uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals, of which I'm, you know, a certified professional mm -hmm. in their their group is. It has to be transparent, but right now it's, quote, best practices rather than legislative. Well, and it's also vertically industry-oriented, too, right? The requirements are Gramm-Leach-Bliley and, right. uh, and the Privacy Act of 74 applied to governments and so on. So it's very vertical, and the HIPAA Act for health care, right. very vertically-oriented. Patchwork. Patchwork. Patchwork And in Europe, of course, we have the uniform, the, the OECD guidelines and the European right. Commission uh, legislation, and it's very uniform. So one of my personal views... Okay. is that uh, in the future we'll see, more? I think, more uniform uh, fundamental privacy legislation in the country that, that sort of levels out these vertical towers of privacy control to a uniform statute or set of statutes for privacy. And well, that, that will promote be, the use. Yeah, I mean, also, if we're going to continue to do business with, you know, global business. Oh, exactly. I mean, it interferes if we have different – I mean, I already see it, that there's problems with companies that, that don't want to give their data – or share their data in the United States because, you know, if they do or if their their data subjects don't want to do it because they, they don't have the same protections. Well, the Safe Harbor Act was a, was a right. noble effort, I think, to blend European privacy view and, right. and U.S. privacy view, but right. I don't think it's being – my view is it's not being uniformly exercised. You yeah. know, a company has to voluntarily sign up for the Safe Harbor conditions and principles and subject them to themselves to those restrictions. Right. And uh, I know there have a number of signatories to that, right. but I don't think it's uniformly applied across all industries. So right. it's a, it was a noble attempt, but I think in the future we'll see more uniform fundamental privacy legislation across the boards. And it will open up things like you said. We'll have clear and present and explicit opting in, opting out, uh, notice, consent, uh, whenever you enter personal information into some system that's going to move it to a number of other different places. Right.
So let's get back to this property issue. If, if you're suggesting that, and I think it's a great idea, that all of our property be considered our own property mm-hmm. and then we make choices with regard to that property, then it would make sense that we also have transparency so we know what we're doing. I mean, obviously. Mm-hmm. So when what's the next touch point after it's collected by the company? Amazon or whomever. Well, let's just uh, follow another, that. What are let's just follow that. And I, now, this is, I, I don't know the specifics, but it, but a representative situation would yeah, be you enter your data, you, you're, yeah. you're buying something on the web. Right. You've entered some amount of personal information, perhaps even your credit card. Right. That goes to the, do uh, you think it goes to Amazon or it does go to Amazon? But uh, that, in some cases, that point is a clearinghouse for, for the subsequent purchase of whatever you're – they may go to a bookstore or to some other web service right. on the backside, and they may have to buy that uh, article for you, and sure. they're just the clearinghouse. Right. And so there may be a third and party involved. And they may involved. outsource also to have somebody process their payment. Exactly. Outsourcing yeah. and uh, database support people and so on. So behind that – the point you see as the collection point may be a number of other relay points, I'll call them, and ultimate uh, data depositories behind that. Now, the question you have then is how does my permissions implicitly or explicitly granted stay bound to my personal information throughout that life cycle? Right. Well, today there's not a uh, very uniform way of doing that. And that's where the ISTPA comes in, is right. that the framework we've described, one of the Fundamental tenets there is that these operational principles, the services we describe, are implemented at every touch point. This is in the future. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm, we're we're, and, we're and evolving. All these this. computers are linked together everywhere exactly. in a network. Then, then that uh, whatever that brain of the computer mm-hmm. will recognize it, whether it's on the outsource company or on the intermediary, another, whoever mm-hmm. that they deal with, it'll be recognized in all of those places is what you're saying. Exactly. And the, the permissions will be bound in some logical, even cryptographic way, right? You want to make these uh, a robust, uh, cannot be uh, circumvented in some cases, binding. So you may cryptographically bind the permissions granted and the policies that surround, say, that jurisdiction, for example. Uh-huh. You can bind a uh-huh. sort of meta permissions granted by the jurisdiction, and that will be bound to the personal information. And each of these touch points if it implements this, this uh, software tower, this right. uh, service tower so that I described. So it reads what those rules are, basically, at each touch point. I, I know I sound elementary, but... No, that's exactly just, how we see I'm it I'm just working. trying to make it so that my audience can understand as well, because we're not as brilliant as you, obviously. At least we don't have that kind of technology Well, brain. we're still looking ahead to the future. We're still looking ahead. This is the ideal. Right, right, right. Ideal. But, I mean, even to understand it, because some... I mean, there's people that I know that don't even know how to, you know, run their Norton, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> or run the software software in their on their computers. So I mean that's the kind of people that might be driving by. There's still those oh, exactly. of us out so, there. I mean yeah. So, so the so, thing is you need we needed the we needed to go from the principles to the operational services so that a, a programmer knows what to program. Right. And so that's why we, we, we devised these ten operational services. And the next step is implementing that at each of these touch points. Right. And then, then, then the, the, it faithfully adheres to the permissions that are granted to personal information. Now, the, now the, that's the, a really important point because, you know, people say, well, you have to protect your own privacy. Well, most people can't protect their own privacy. It's beyond their control. Exactly, because they don't understand the life cycle. They don't understand the life cycle, and they also don't understand, when you're talking about they don't understand the life cycle, means they don't know who all of the vendors are or the outsource companies are that will have access hmm. to their information. You know, sometimes exactly. you sign something that say, I authorize you to share this with those who you need to for, you know, for, with HIPAA, mm-hmm. you know, so that 
you know, the, the, the process payment, my health carrier, whoever else it is has access to that, and you, you want them to have mm-hmm. access to it, but you don't know how the whole thing works. But if the exactly. whole thing is, is networked and the rules go with the, the data wherever it goes, which is what I think I hear and you saying. And the implementation is interoperable and consistent, right, throughout. Right, right. If it is, then, then that's protected all the way, and there's some security there. Exactly. Yeah. It, now, do they have access? Would you have also built into it certain access controls? In other words, some people will have access to that information uh, that others won't. Well, you, you, as you, as a privacy person, you understand that security is one one aspect of privacy. Privacy is is more encompassing because privacy, in a sense, deals with how the good guys misuse information. In a sense, right? It's a even if people have have access granted information, they can still misuse it because they're violating the permissions granted against that information. So, and, and good guys could could turn to be bad guys. Oh, turn turn bad I mean, also. We, have dirt, we see dirty that. insiders, as you know. I mean, that happens all the time. So, security is a fundamental element in our in our security service in our privacy services. Right. So that security is access control, confidentiality. So right. you have that. You have an overlay of security protecting those basic tenets of confidentiality, access control, and so on. But below that, you want something that implements this permission structure to allow the, the, the permissions to be consistently uh, exercised in the future of personal information. Yeah. So when we're talking about security, we're talking protection of data. When we're talking about privacy, we're talking about control by the user. Exactly. And so you, you have to have... In other words, to have security, you don't necessarily have to have privacy. No, exactly. But to have privacy, you pretty much need to have security. Because you need those essential elements of access control, authentication, authorization, and confidentiality. So ownership is is definitely saying, giving me more control over my information. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is privacy. So let's talk about the other three elements that you talked about in your your talk. Okay. Just one one more comment. As I I listen to myself describe this structure, ideal that it is, it sounded a bit rigid. And I want to point out that, for example, in this scenario we gave, if you gave personal information to uh, a Amazon. company you're buying from, right. and they wanted to, uh, they had to change the permissions granted in order to interact with one of their dealers. Okay. Now, what they can do under our structure is they can renegotiate with you. There's a service called negotiation that allows any of these touch points to come back to the user or to the subject and renegotiate a, a new set of permissions. So it's a very dynamic structure. So let's say structure. they wanted to negotiate. They were going to offer me something in return. Exactly. We'll give you five free books if you allow us to share it with such and such vendor. Or if you give me a little more information. You see a lot of deals now, you get 10% discount if you'll uh, answer this questionnaire that has some personal information. So, so if that, As long as I know what... What, in other words, there's a fair trade, and then I also know what's going to happen with that information. Exactly. So, so there is this dynamic of being able to renegotiate and reestablish permissions that then get rebound to the personal information as it continues on its path. Okay, so who does the renegotiation? It, it's like a, a, a something comes to me in the mail. It's automatic from the computer. The computer thinks it through and tries to negotiate with me? Well, the, 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 the <laughs> ideal, <laughs> the idea, I'm, a, I'm a computer guy, so the ideal is that it's all automated. Right. But as we evolve to that sort of ideal point, it will be an interaction of computing services and humans. Right. So, so our, our service uh, structure allows you as a human to negotiate with me as a human, 
and then perhaps then interact with the computer to reestablish the permissions. Right. So or it's, or it's going to be a hybrid. Notify me of, of this opportunity. At least notification, say, These are your options if you'll be willing to do this. These are your options. Do you want to do it? So yeah. any of these new technologies, we have to sort of iteratively refine and iteratively yeah. uh, evolve them. And, and certainly the human element is going to always be critical in the management of personal information. Yeah. What I really liked about what your talk was is you were building into the framework, into the architecture of privacy, mm -hmm. which, like when you think of RFIDs right now, radio frequency identifiers, it's not. It's way ahead of any privacy. Exactly. And that's what I got. So I was sitting there and getting so excited listening to you because I'm saying, here's a technology guy who gets it, who yeah. knows how to implement it right into the structure, just like you're putting encryption right into the hard drive. You're you're putting privacy right into the entire platform. Exactly. Great. Uh, they're, they're, they're dual. They're both sides of a, of a, a very essential coin. They're just two sides of the same coin to me. people don't see it. Most people don't. No, no. no, no they or don't. some, as you suggested earlier, some uh, see a degenerate view of privacy that it's just, I'll encrypt something or make it confidential, and that's the, that's the end of my privacy concerns, whereas it's really how those permissions are exercised. That's the essence of of, yeah. uh, of, of privacy. Right. Now, you were talking a little more as privacy is separate and di distinct from property. So do you want to? Okay. The, the, uh, I had really talked about bringing those four technologies together right. uh, and those being implemented on storage devices in the future because there's a tremendous computing capability and storage capability on storage devices. It's where your data is. Why not do data-sensitive things directly on the storage device in the future? Mm -hmm. And so uh, trust and security were uh, the sort of the essential building block, and that comes from the Trusted Computing Group Storage Work Group. Uh, the second thing we talked about was privacy, which uh, the operational definition of that I see uh, coming from the International Security Trust and Privacy Alliance in the operational framework, where you have this life cycle view and this permission control view. Uh, the third dimension was the information is property. That is, uh, today you see information is property applied to uh, selective information like uh, movies and music and so on. But in the future, as you indicated, I want and you want all of the information related to you or corporate data or sensitive data or uh, embarrassing data, whatever, all information should have this tenet attached to it that it is my information, it's my property, uh -huh. and the attendant rules for control and managing and granting permissions should follow all information as if it's my property. Right, and I, you know what I was looking for? I had read last night um, the International Security Trust and Privacy Alliance Privacy Framework. Oh, poor and, thing. Well, I, I didn't read every single word. You had I, I mean, to it, do I mean, that. There's, you know, no, but I went through it because I was looking to see, you know, what you were going to be talking about. And I was uh, very happy to see that you were building in the fair information practices and kind of comparing them with the Federal Trade Commission's because the Federal Trade Commission's fair information practices are far more limited than the ones that you look that you're looking at, in, exactly. uh, which are much more like the European Union and the OED. Oh, well, the OED. just to, uh, now that you've touched on that, we have an, a, a paper that we just completed called Analysis of Privacy Legislation that's available in our booth and discussion in our booth oh, at the conference. Yeah. And it will soon be available on our website. We've got some internal reviews going on now. Now, which website? Reviews. So let's give the it. The org uh, website. Okay. So All we right. have completed this analysis instrument, and it's what we did was we took uh, 11 le legislative instruments, that, like you've described. We took uh, representative instruments, the OECD guidelines, the Privacy Act of 74 in the U.S., the Australian, uh, the Japanese, the uh, Far East uh, privacy initiatives that were very representative. We took the HIPAA Act, for example, and threw that in. 
And we looked Graham at... Graham H. Bliley, did you look uh, at that? Well, no, we, uh, Graham H. Bliley had drawn on some other more core right. privacy principles. So we were looking for representative and different, because uh, yes. there's, there's dozens of these. Yes. And we wanted to single it down to a usable set for our analysis, right. which was these 11. Right. And what we found was there's a lot of core principles involved, notice, consent, and so on. But there's wide variation in the uh, details. For example, under notice alone, uh, there are many dimensions to notice. How do I give notice? Do I send you a letter in the mail? Do I have to uh, send you a certified letter? Do I have to post it on a uh, courthouse wall? Uh, how do I give notice? There's variations. And, and also the notice, I mean, how, how clear does it have to be? We saw those privacy notices uh, that came out that were at the those? 18th, you know, I, I guess at the 12th <laughs> grade level that were so convoluted, written by attorneys, which I am one, and I know not to do that. But they, they're so convoluted, or you get something on a website and you think that it's already marked opt-in. Now, is that really opt-in? <laughs> if you send it back, it is. <laughs> yeah, because people don't know. I mean, they don't even re recognize this. So, you know, I don't think that the notice um, is clear. Exactly. And, and you'll see that when you look at the legislation, and it tells you they, they give more particulars about how notice should be granted. Uh -huh. Some of them even use, try to use this non-ambiguous language word. They, they say the language should be non-ambiguous, meaning, meaning right. not this gibberish and right. uh, high-level reading and, and, right. and subjective, subjective clauses and so on that you right. see. Uh, but what we found was that across the boards there were some core principles, wide variation. And the interesting thing is in the, some of the later legislation, there were new concepts appearing. The concept of anonymity, by the way, only appeared in later legislation, even though we may view that as a fundamental right to be anonymous when we want mm -hmm. to be. Yes. It's not necessarily legislated that we can be anonymous. Right. And so that appears in some later legislation. What we did for the sake of the, uh, of the really, this was work geared toward uh, evolving and, and, and updating our framework to do this analysis. So it wasn't an exhaustive analysis. What we did was to define, we found 14 principles that transcended all of these legislation that we looked at. And we put those, we developed these composite definitions. And that's, what's, that's really kind of the result of our analysis. And what we would hope, you asked a question earlier about uh, how do I see uh, privacy legislation evolving. I, I, see it in, I see it involving in two ways. I think in the United States, we'll move to a more horizontal instead of silo and vertical privacy legislation instead structure. Of, instead of patchwork, you're going instead to of patchwork, see, yeah, yeah, you're more going to see privacy is a fundamental kind of right like, yes. across the boards, across industries. And, and that will promote the use, I think, that, those, that kind of legislation will promote the use of operational technologies to uh, help, help automate, if you will, and streamline some of the uh, requirements. So you'll you know, see we, the, uh, we are the really the only economically advanced country in the world that does not have a privacy commission. Well, you know, I, I mean, you look that, at. Exactly. I mean, I've met. We had uh, one of the privacy commissioners from Canada, mm -hmm. uh, Anne Kruvikian, on our show, and uh, she's from the province of Ontario. And um, you know, I've met the privacy commissioner of New Zealand and all these other places, and we don't have one. The closest we had was under the Clinton administration, mm -hmm. when we had Peter Swire, who we had him on our show as well. But there really isn't, you know, you've got this privacy commission or you've got privacy officers that are designated for all of the governmental agencies, agencies. But you don't have, like, an ombudsman area to look into the privacy issues that are going on. The closest thing you have is the Federal Trade Commission, and they don't really have that kind of authority. Well, and we're seeing enough privacy violations at all levels of government and private sector and so on. And, and the proliferation of information and a data storage and so on that I think we're going, we'll see a drive toward more uniform legislation in the future. And by the way, Ann and uh, Peter are both uh, very good friends of the ISTPA. We have uh, ongoing yeah, relationships with both of those people yes, in our, yeah. developing our framework.
I think I, I did mention the other dimension of this being the uh, the data semantics. I think that's the last element of the four elements okay. that I described uh, after we were talking about information as property. The uh, data semantics is is the idea of driving more meaning, uh, data more understanding the meaning and the content of the data itself. So that when you're processing data, you can understand what it's like. Are you looking at pictures? Are you trying to sort on pictures? Are you trying to sort on uh, bank files or and what is the the semantic content of that information so that I can more streamline the processing of that information and that's all automated so you're you're really giving a, a brain I mean we've talked about mm -hmm. computers having a brain but now it has discernment it, I mean this is this is I really didn't I, I did say the word sentient but I didn't I was half teasing I don't <laughs> see storage devices becoming sentient in the future well, right how I mean, nine thousand yeah, it's like my mother used to say anything man can think of man can do so that's yes. all I could think about the whole, the whole time you were talking about this mm -hmm. was hell in their computer remember <laughs> seeing that I remember seeing it on um, we went to Times Square I was with a girlfriend and I saw that movie on December 31st at you exactly. know I, yeah for New Year's we went there in Times Square and I saw that movie and <laughs> I was thinking oh my gosh is that really <laughs> the future and what you're saying is we are really, it can happen. Well, let's say, to me, it's, it's called it intelligence yes. instead of sentience. But intelligence yes. applied to the processing of data and the merger of these four concepts. Because what we described in the abstract, after all, is taking information as property and treating it with a set of controls, whether it's permissions granted in the privacy domain, whether it's usage granted in the information as property domain, uh, and understanding the content of the data more so you can process it more efficiently, all of that is a convergence of control mechanisms onto the storage device. What, what scares me is the dark side a little bit. Let's mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. I mean, on one hand, someone like you, I would feel very safe. I feel comfortable with you already. <laughs> it's the it, accent. No, it's the accent <laughs> and just, you know, hearing you and, and what your philosophy is. And so when if someone like you is setting up the rules or, you know, your or, the organization mm -hmm. is setting up the rules. And, yeah, what I get worried about is having a computer that would have that kind of intelligence that somebody's setting up rules that are really privacy invasive or you know almost like what I keep thinking what we talked about before with the TSA the no-fly list you know we don't know what the rules are all we know is we're locked out we have a we have a, a kid in our neighborhood who's 15 years old who can't get on an airplane all right, and we can't find out why. We can't get him off the list, and every time he goes, he has a hassle. I guess he's on the watch list. No fly, he wouldn't be able to get on the airplane. That's the kind of concern that I have is when you've got this intelligent computer that, that starts to really take over and no one knows how to, uh, to, to read it. Do you know well, what I'm hey, saying? Let, uh, let me not – I won't take a government view or agency view of this. Let me take a private sector view of that and because uh, I've seen it from uh, many different large companies. The bottom line is with all this technology that a company employs – exploring this technology, has to put their reputation on the line. Yes. Uh, and companies uh, in these days with lost uh, laptops and stolen laptops and personal information being lost are suffering uh, millions of dollars of loss in reputation and actual product probably uh, by, by the reputation hit, by the uh, fact that they have knowingly violated some tenet of privacy or security. So I think that uh, the, the, the bottom line uh, enforcement structure here is a company wanting to maintain its good reputation. So yeah, companies that's, will do that's that's com that's dependent on us having disclosures exactly. in the future. Right. Now, as you know, as we sit here, Congress is already talking about watering down the California security breach law. You know, and the California security breach law says that if there is a data breach of unencrypted computerized information that is in the hands of an 
unauthorized person, you must disclose. You must notify, okay? Mm -hmm. But as we know, right now, there's a big fight in Congress right now about watering that down to say that if in the minds of the um, company themselves they think there's a reasonable risk of harm, then you must disclose. So am I getting through as my concern as – Will there really be enforcement? How, you used the word several times, the word transparency. Yes. How transparent will the system be made? And yes. I think that, again, depends. It will pivot off the reputation. Again, I'm talking private sector. But if no one knows, okay, for example, Choice Point, two years before they had, the disclo- they had to disclose back in 2005, exactly. they had a big breach. Axiom had a, a breach of a million files that they never disclosed. But see, that though all the companies, all the private companies, know those things happened and know those are potential. And so I think a number of, uh, especially they have a, any, any fiduciary responsibility themselves, that a, a, a good faith companies have gone back and have reexamined their own vulnerabilities to that sort of thing. But and so you're seeing seen a, the kind of rush to technology to, to protect privacy until we had our security breach law that passed in 2003. That's true. I mean – Self-regulation is, doesn't, in my mind, work, unfortunately. No. I've seen it many times. Not that I want to have a million lawsuits, but there needs to have some kind of enforcement and disclosure. And, tra- and transparency. And transparency. And, and, and I think more of that will be forced uh, on, the, cust- on the, the vendors and the uh, companies by, by virtue of our own demands, their, their own uh, exposure, uh, their own, uh, uh, you know, getting kind of get caught in the act, as some of these companies are. And uh, it'll just sort of raise the uh, bar, I think, has already across the whole dimension of other other companies. Right. I think if we had a, a privacy commission or some – or the Federal Trade mm-hmm. Commission had more authority or more resources, perhaps that we would see it. I think people are afraid of the Federal Trade Commission coming in and slapping them with $15 Big million. Dollars and Big all that. Yeah. They're, mm-hmm. I think they're afraid of that. Is if we have that ability for there to be enforcement, that's why that's in the privacy principles. Mm-hmm. If you don't have enforcement, it's like it's like saying to a kid, Week "Be home length. at ten o'clock," and then they don't get home at ten o'clock, and you don't do anything. <laughs> a week is length, and enforcement is a very critical service, by the way, in our uh, our privacy framework. Right, right. Okay, so those we got to the four elements. Exactly. Did we finish with the four elements. We did. Yeah. Okay. Now. Um, one of the other things that I didn't quite understand that I thought was fascinating was you were talking about on hard drives there's this hidden area mm-hmm. that – could you explain that? Because I, I got a little bit lost about that. This I, was uh, – in, uh, in the work we've done in the Trusted Computing Group, uh, in the storage work group, we've been working at this three years now. We've got all the industry represented, all the hard drives, the flash, the tape, the optical people are all sitting there working on the standard. And we're all competitors by day, but we realize we want a common standard. Uh, the, the common theme of a storage device is there's a lot of storage, obviously, right. billions and zillions of uh, bits of storage. Even USB Teeny things. things. They're oh. moving toward uh, 20, 30 gigabits in those little I little devices. I around. Put it, I guess, in your underwear or something. No, just, well, there's some of these already sewn in. Your RFID, which has some memory, right. is already sewn into the fabric of your clothing. Exactly. Right? Now, I just read recently that it's the grain of a sand. They can do oh. an RFID. I guess the, 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 the passive ones are, can, oh, yeah. can be a, a, in a grain of sand. And they sew it into the threading of your clothes. Yes. So it's a part of the permit. So it's you a, don't a, even know it's inventory there. Tra- well, th- presumably there for inventory tracking purposes. Right. 
But, so but, I just read recently that they have one now that you can actually tear off when you leave the store. Mm -hmm. Or de they energy. have deactivation technologies now. Yeah, so it'll, yeah. it'll zap it and kill the uh, circuitry in, in theory. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but the, uh, this, the, the, the fascinating thing about a storage device, and very people, few people think about this, is it's a powerful computing device all by itself, the storage device. It's where all the data is, and it has a computer. It has its own memory. It has this hidden, hidden memory that you, you talked about. Where if, if I'm reading and writing to memory on my drive, yes, uh, a 50 gigabit hard drive, and you've okay. got user space, right. there's a couple hundred megs of memory that the hard drive manufacturers have reserved for themselves because that's where we have to put our programs. Okay. There are programs and firmware and statistics and things that we keep about your drive that we need to keep in that hidden memory. Hidden meaning, it's, it's not hidden in the in the, uh, in the uh, Scary sense. It's hidden because we don't want you, as a reader writer, to be able to overwrite our okay. stuff because right. it's what it's the intelligence behind the drive itself. Okay. What we realize, though, in looking at security on hard drives is, I could exploit that hidden memory. I could put sensitive or personal information in that hidden memory under very privileged functions. And I mentioned the the fact that we've got standardized a trusted send and a trusted receive interface to drives now where I can, under access control, I can send a trusted command to the drive, and I can get access to some of that hidden memory that I couldn't now, normally how, get how access to. How user-friendly is that going to be for someone who's not a real techie? I mean, for well, someone like you or, or the IT department or the CIO or something, that's Well, it's, it's access in layers. What I did on the drive is very, uh, very bit, very interfacey, very technical, because it's a very low-level drive interface. Okay. But we already have vendor software, application software, uh, we're, in fact, showing some of that software in our booth that builds it. on top of those low-level interfaces. So you don't have to see that low-level interface. You see very user-friendly graphical interfaces and so on. So we, we take the low-level interface at the trusted level, and, and still the authentication mechanisms are invoked, and you get this higher-level user interface where it's very friendly. Okay, so if it's that friendly, how is it that maybe the hackers can't get into it? Well, the, the, there is a, there's a, there's a mechanism for assigning some of this hidden memory to an application. So an application has to pre-license, if you will, that hidden memory on the drive. So let's say, let, let, let me make it real simple, like QuickBooks, okay? Mm -hmm. I have a lot of sensitive information exactly. about my, okay. QuickBooks would be a good example. That's a good they, example. Okay. So say QuickBooks wants to store your personal information in a more secure area than they may be storing it today. They want to store it, uh, maybe even encrypted, uh, on this hidden memory. What QuickBooks would do would get a license for a little piece of that hidden memory. That is, they would get a, a secret credential that's granted only to them that allows from them Dell or, or uh, from, from Dell or Microsoft okay. or, uh, or, 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 or perhaps even Seagate. Okay. Uh, could be various business models for that. Okay. But the concept is that they get uh, issued a credential that they negotiate for that allows them to unlock on any drive a little piece of hidden memory that is exclusive to them. So when the application first comes up, they present that hidden memory under this access control process. Right. It activates that little hidden memory that from that point on is dedicated to that application. Okay, so, so me as the user of, of QuickBooks that QuickBooks. wants to make it encrypted easily or something, then I would also have access to that through... Well, through typically, the application... See, you would rather not be bothered by this level of, right. uh, of discussion, <laughs> right? right? You'd rather this be transparent in the opaque sense. So QuickBooks would make the business decision that they want higher security underneath the covers behind their stuff, where they put your personal information, okay. where they put your... Uh, your tax records and so on. Right. So QuickBooks would make that negotiation 
to get that hidden space. They may brag to you that they've got better security than the next guy, but they wouldn't expose the details of that to you. I mean, why should you be bothered with the details of how that's all done except to know that they're guaranteeing or promising some higher level of security? So what does that mean to me, that that, that someone can't get into those files on my computer, even, exactly. if, even if I get a virus or a Trojan or something Exactly. Like that? The viruses and Trojans are all sitting out on the outside. To get access to that piece of memory assigned to Quick to Quicken or Quick or, or to uh, uh, TurboTax or whomever, yeah. uh, they they would have to have uh, somehow acquired the credential that's assigned uniquely and confidentially to Quicken. So unless you have a um, unscrupulous employee at Quicken, you're okay. And and even Quicken <laughs> will have its own controls. I mean, they will oh, build so they these will products have access that don't that even limit. allow their you know their rank and file. They they will install this process and make it work. Uh, at a very privileged level to begin with, because they won't allow uh, what Dave, I think one of the speakers called the uh, the factory attack, where you go in and change things in the boxes before the software is even sold. Right. Attack right. the boxes in the factory. Wow. So so they will protect against factory attacks and so on themselves, just as part of their their normal, uh, you know, common sense risk risk analysis and risk risk management. Let me introduce you again because we we get so oh. excited about what we're talking about. I'm okay. just I'm really thrilled to be with you, and I just want to have our people who are driving by will know that we are speaking with Dr. Michael Willett. He is senior director of security at Seagate Technology. He's been a professor of computer sciences and mathematics. And how did you get from mathematics into c- computer? Well, I know it's well, pretty similar. Well, but- very interesting. I actually I was very uh, I was honored to have as my thesis director in North Carolina was Dr. Jack Levine. He's a he's well known in classical cryptography circles. He was one of those guys that helped uh, secretly break codes during World War II. So he ah. worked on he worked on sort of the old style and what I call classical cryptographic devices. Mm-hmm. And it remained his hobby throughout his mathematics career. So I did work with him on my dissertation in cryptography. And we uh, at that time explored the mathematics of cryptography because math- cryptography, which is the science of secret writing, secret right, code writing, right, right? right? Whether you think of it as the Captain Video decoder ring or or a more sophisticated device, it's the it's the science of secret writing and making codes. And and the uh, the foundations of cryptography are mathematical. Right. So my research in when I, all the years I was a university professor, all of my research was in cryptography, was in the uh-huh. mathematics of cryptography. So I could actually, uh, people say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a mathematician. They say, oh, <laughs> right, and, and sort of drift away. Well, now I could tell them about working on secret codes oh, that's and exciting. that sort of thing. And it, you, could, you could actually get the story across a lot better. <laughs> and your so. family wants to know what you do. Then they ask you all those questions. Exactly. Okay. All right. So, so tell me about your job at Seagate. You know, it, it around, it, you have a security functionality on hard drives. So... What does that mean to me? What does that mean to all of us? What exactly. do you really well, do for a living? Uh, I work in research, and our, our, okay. our job in research in, uh, in Seagate is to anticipate technologies anywhere from three to ten years in advance or more. Mm-hmm. And so we have a very uh, active research group in Pittsburgh. And so uh, security was one of those concepts. We said, let's, you know, uh, the, the head of our group, uh, Bob Thibodeau, who is also a Carnegie Mellon University professor of computer science, he conceived of this idea of putting security on hard drives. And he brought that concept to Seagate some years ago, and, and Seagate loved the idea. And so we, we germinated that thought in research, like what does that mean? Uh, what particular functions can we put on the hard drive? How do we interface to the hard drive to get those security functions? So in research, we worked out the details. And what we do periodically is we hand off from research these technologies that are becoming more uh, 
immediately implementable. We hand them off to our development groups and they pick it up. So we're in that stage now of handing off uh, to our development groups. And one of the first products that we've announced is a full disk encrypting hard drive. Right. Now, isn't, encrypts, isn't Microsoft already doing have it, have that already? Uh, Microsoft has a, a BitLocker function that's called in uh, in the, the newest version Vista, and it's a software-based uh, application oh, software. that does okay. does encryption on hard drives. Right. And uh, there are a number of products that do encryption uh, on hard drives based off of software. That is, the application is sitting over on your platform on your C, on your laptop. It reaches over to the hard drive, grabs the data, encrypts it, puts it back on the hard drive. But you're Our talking view is, about Right into the hard right drive. Right in the hard drive. Why it's not so put, smart. if the data's there, you know, why do they rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Yeah. Why don't, they, why don't you put the encrypting hardware, and we do it in hardware, not software, the encrypting hardware directly on the drive? And then you could do it on cell phones. You could do it on PDAs, right? You could exactly. do it on Exactly. You can put that same technology. Right. In fact, you mentioned, funny you mentioned cell phone, because in the Trusted Computing Group, one of our work groups is mobile phone work group. And they're just now doing their specifications, and in the future you'll see trusted Hard to believe, but you'll see trusted phones in the future based on similar technology. Okay, let me ask you a question because this is uh, this is a non-techie question mm -hmm. for a technologist, and that is when we talk about encryption, um, one twenty-eight encryption, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. um, what does that really mean? I mean, do I want it more? I mean, can I have it more? Is it legal to have more than one twenty-eight bit encryption? And okay. Okay. What does uh, all that mean? Well, it, 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 is, a, it is an arcane uh, <laughs> a, a technical subject, but uh, the, the United States government uh, had a, uh, an algorithm called Data Encryption Standard for 20-some-odd years now, and they, right. uh, some years ago, uh, got in the process of replacing that algorithm. So they have adopted what's called the Advanced Encryption Standard, the AES right. algorithm. Right. And, and that's, a, I think, what we, we, we tied our law, our security breach law, to, saying that if you encrypt to mm -hmm. that you know, level that strength, level, because right. we didn't know what it would be when we mm -hmm. wrote the law. You know, I was in part of that. We just said, well, let's just make it the, whatever that standard is. Uh -huh. And then if you do that, then you don't have to disclose. I don't know if that's true that's, or not. They did. They have tied it to a particular technology. And to explain what that means, uh, the AES algorithm, the way, I, the way I think of cryptography anyway, is it's a stirring and boiling. You take a piece of plain information, and out mathematically, you stir it a while, and then you boil it a while, and then you stir it a while, and you boil it a while. It and then it's we, unintelligible And then it's completely else. unintelligible. You may do right. that for uh, 16 or more rounds of boiling and stirring and boiling and stirring. There are mathematical counterparts to boiling and stirring, but that's, right. it's a really good imagery for yes. me. And that's what happens. So the soup gets thoroughly mixed, right. and it's, it's indecipherable, right. except you've got a secret key a little secret string of information that if you insert it back into the device, it unscrambles what you've done. It brings it right. back to the plain text. Right. Right. Now, when they say 128-bit, you think of that's a string of zeros and ones, okay. 128 zeros and ones long. Okay. Now, think of it this way. If somebody said one of those keys in that box is the key that unlocks this information. Yes. And so it's a box full of keys. Now, what would be the what's called the brute force approach? The brute force approach would be pull try a key out of the them. box and try every key. <laughs> yeah. Well, probability tells you that on average you're going to have to try half of those keys before you find the right one. Uh, sometimes it will go all the way to the end. Sometimes okay. it will be the very first key. But on average, it's the middle key. It's the okay. halfway through. Okay. So that if you've got a lot of keys, it takes a long time. So the number of keys that are available to the AES algorithm is the number 2 to the 128th power. Okay. So that's like uh, 10 with about uh, 
40 or 50 decimal digits after it. So it's pretty hard to unlock. And, it's and, pretty and, hard and, to and search through. And a bad through. guy is not going to do it except if they're going to get something like maybe all the veterans or something. You know? yeah. yeah, something, some Even, huge that, database that they think is really filled well, with Well, with 128 want. bits, if you, you say 10 to the 40th or 50th power, right. that's uh, more than the number of grains of sand in the universe. It's probably wow. almost more than the number of molecules. So you can't even you can't even do a parallel processing. You can't get enough computers together in one world, much less a hundred worlds, to attack the problem from a brute force point of view. So that's the standard right now, or that's the standard now, and the standard is expected to last thirty or forty years into the future. Wow. Now uh, that's now, that's I'll at one twenty eight. We interviewed last week. We interviewed this guy who was trying to. He's a scientist, mm -hmm. a graduate student, and he's up to what? What did he say? Three hundred and thirty. It was really two fifty eight. Yeah, 250, I'm two fifty six. Yeah, two fifty six bit encryption. Well, the, 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 what the, he was the, trying to do so, like Gmail, where you, if you use Gmail, mm -hmm. everything is out there for anybody to for see. For a long time, also stored for a long time. And it's stored for a long time. He was he's doing research on how to encrypt that mm -hmm. to to 256 and make it user friendly so anybody who uses Gmail doesn't give their life away out there they can keep things exactly. private. And then I asked him this question and you know he's foreign and I said, "Well, how about law enforcement? Are they going to have a right to say this because of terrorism and stuff?" And he said, "Well, he hasn't dealt with that yet." But well, so we, uh, there are there are no back doors in that algorithm, right? That was something that in was uh, uh, in, no the, in the in the 128 the 256. Just to mention the uh, NIST, the uh, the government body that standardized AES for the government, they thought ahead and they said, "Let's don't put one fixed key length in the algorithm. Let's pick multiple key lengths." So 256 is the next key length after that, and there are there 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 are more two to the 256 power. There are more. That's more than the number of electrons probably in the universe. Okay, so but, but that's let a me stronger ask you, algorithm. Yeah. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to ask you this: someone like me, who is not technology oriented, and most people aren't. All right, how are we going to like really if? if how am I going to be able to do this user-friendly where I can encrypt the, my hard drive, I can encrypt things that I'm sending for email. I already use password protected, and I never put anything mm -hmm. in there that's sensitive because I, I don't have all of the, the brains to do that yet. So what are you suggesting for ordinary users, which are the majority of the people? Well, you're doing the right due diligence. I mean, you just have to be aware of what the options are, especially in this Internet world of ours where information is so freely exchanged. There are a certain set of base technologies. I mean, I would encourage the, uh, you to look seriously PGP. at a, uh, the, the secure communications under PGP and those kind of technologies, secure communication. Make sure it's got the little lock closed on the bottom of the, you know, your screen yeah, that says yeah. it's secure communications. You want your data as it's stored at rest to be secured. Yes. And I would, I would look at a full disk encrypting drive because that gives you the assurance that left, loss or loss uh, or stolen laptops right. are secure. Now, how soon are those going to be out where you're going to oh, get these full? Are the, they already out there? They're, they're out there now. We've announced uh, okay. this week a delivery through one of our vendors. So we, we delivered Okay, I want to get vendors. one right away. Okay. Well, I'll try to put you on the list then. But they are available through the OEMs that are putting PCs together. And the future of data is all data at rest, we think, will be encrypted ultimately. Because why should it lay there in the clear? It spends most of its life in, life in memory. Why should it lay there in memory in the clear when it should be encrypted? Right, especially when we've had, you know, over 100, I think it's now up to 105 million records have been publicly disclosed since the end of 2005. So that's a lot. Lloyd is telling me that we don't have much time. I want to thank you, Michael. You're brilliant, and you can oh, make it understandable. You picked my favorite subject. Thank you. Oh, I know, but, you know, it, I can understand it. And for <laughs> someone like me to understand it, it feels great. I mean, I know privacy, but I surely don't know security. 
Security, and I'm not a mathematician. That was that's why I became a lawyer because <laughs> if I if I could do numbers, I would have become an accountant. So you are really wonderful, and we have been speaking with Dr. Michael Willett, and he is a brilliant technologist. He is the senior director of security for Seagate Technology. You can learn more about him at Seagate.com, and. Um, Pull down so, now the other website. Tell me the other the web. IST, ISTPA.org is okay, the, that's the privacy the, website. Okay, that's the International Security Trust and Privacy Alliance. All right, and, and that, the, the other is the uh, Trusted Computing Group, all spelled out. TrustedComputingGroup.org. Okay, very good. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday night from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our previous guests, our upcoming guests. You can even download our podcast, and you can listen right there and listen to Michael and learn a lot from him again and again. Thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer, and thank you, Michael. This is great. Thank you again. Okay. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. bites and constant visual stimulation telling us how to look, act, talk, and feel, we have lost our ability to connect. Instead of focusing on what celebrities are doing as if they were our acquaintances, maybe we can look more to each other to emulate and learn from. Join us Friday mornings from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. with Peace by Peace, where we discuss issues that affect our peace peace of humanity, and peace in our time.